Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. This is Dr. Robert Cialdini, author of Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, New and Expanded. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Dr. Robert Cialdini to talk about his book, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion, New and Expanded, published by HarperCollins. Dr. Robert Cialdini is the recognized thought leader in the fields of influence and persuasion and is a New York Times bestselling author with over 7 million books sold worldwide in 44 languages. He is the author of Persuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade, which was featured on episode 90 of the Marketing Book Podcast in 2016. Dr. Cialdini is currently Regents Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University. He has spent his entire career designing conducting and publishing rigorous scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals on what leads people to say yes to requests. He is the president of Influence at Work and is also a highly sought-after keynote speaker, and all of this has earned him the moniker of the godfather of influence. And interesting fact, he is from the same place as the American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Dr. Cialdini, congratulations on the new and expanded edition of Influence, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you, Douglas. I'm looking forward to it, I have to say. Well, this will be uh, episode 345, and it's as if, without you knowing this, you've been an occasional co-host on the Marketing Book Podcast, because your book, the book we're about to talk about, has been mentioned more than any other author in interviews and in their books. In fact, the next author I'm interviewing uh, later this week, they've got an entire chapter about this book. 
that happens all the time. So uh, this is really, really special. And I just have to mention, I really cherish the autographed copy of the book that you sent me. Some people collect uh, autographed sports memorabilia. I collect autographed marketing and sales books. So <laughs> thank you very much for your kind words in the, in the, uh, when you autographed it. Well, I meant it, and uh, thank you for that heartening information about your uh, about my co-hosting of your, <laughs> right. your prior episodes. That's right. You you could add that to your bio. I, you know, yeah. maybe maybe if it's a long bio. So I first heard about the book about twenty years ago from a client, and I'm embarrassed that I only found out about it twenty years ago. And because the book was first published in 1984, and then uh, anyway, I read it you know 20 years ago. When a client recommends a book, you better read it, and I'm so glad I did. And where I live in Norfolk, Virginia, there's Old Dominion University, and I had a friend who'd been in industry for many years, and he quasi-retired, and he started teaching a course on communications. And every semester, he would have me come into the class. It was a class of seniors. And what he wanted me to talk about was one book, this book. So every semester, I mean, there's only so much Robert Cialdini to go around. And uh, what I would do is I would come in and I would show that about a 10-minute video that I believe you and Stephen J. Martin produced. Right. And then we would go through a series of exercises, and it was a real hit with the students. And I even ran into some afterwards uh, around town, and a couple of them mentioned that it's like they see it everywhere now, all the, all the principles of persuasion. It's like I helped to put the lens, the, the influence lens on, and now they see it wherever they go. So I, I, I suppose you've heard that from other uh, people that have been exposed to your work. Well, again, something that's been heartening to me uh, throughout the tenure of the book. So a lot of people, I, I, a number of friends and followers on LinkedIn knew that I was going to be interviewing you and even other authors and people that listened to the show. They were very excited about it. And the people that have read this book and swear by it, they're going to read this one too. Okay. So what I, I have heard from folks who said, I've heard so much about that book, but I've never actually read it. I almost want to ask you some questions and maybe fashion our conversation uh, around the folks that maybe have not heard about these uh, principles of persuasion, and maybe this will get them to uh, read it for the, for the first time. Does that... Would that be okay? I know it's stepping back, but I think yeah. it would really have a big impact for, for folks like it has for so many who have read the book. Surely. That sounds like a, a good uh, idea to me. Anyway. Okay. Well, let me yeah. just mention there was something I – you have quite a sense of humor, Dr. Cialdini. For anyone who reads the book, there were, I, there were quite a few pages where I had to write ha! exclamation point because it was just funny things. I'm not sure everyone gets it, and I'm, I have a feeling maybe all your students don't, don't appreciate your sense of humor, but, but I did. I got every joke you told. So there was one thing that you wrote at the, in, the, in the preface. You wrote, shaping the current edition of influence has been challenging for me. On the one hand, recalling the don't fix what's not broken axiom, I was reluctant to perform major reconstructive surgery. After all, previous versions had sold more copies than I could have sensibly imagined in multiple editions and 44 languages. In this regard, my Polish colleague, Professor Wilhelmina Wazinska offered an affirming yet sobering commentary on the perceived worth of the book. She said, you know, Robert, your book influence is so famous in Poland, my students think you're dead. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a, a 
it it was an affirming yet sobering commentary <laughs> on the uh, on the book, and it was one of the reasons I decided. You know, I think it's time for a change. If people think. I'm dead, then uh, maybe I need to disabuse them of that by providing a newer, updated edition. Right, right. So I would think that people have asked you that forever. Like when there's a new edition coming along, what, when would it be? What is it that finally uh, made this one happen? Three things. The first was since the previous edition, 12 years had passed, and there was a lot of research and knowledge within persuasion science that had accumulated that deserved a place inside the book. The second thing is that during that period of time, the internet had blossomed. And a a question I frequently get is, how are these principles, uh, how are they applied best to electronic commerce, to to social media, to those kinds of platforms that didn't exist when the book was initially published. So one of the things that I've done is to talk about how uh, marketers have been able to migrate the principles of influence that we find in in the book to these new uh, uh, channels of information. Uh, you know, the, there's an interesting feature of this. My my book has been called the Bible of electronic commerce of e marketing. Well, how could that be since it was written before there was e marketing? And people have asked me, how could you look forward and see that this was going to be the case when you wrote the book? The truth is, I didn't look forward. I looked inward at what were the factors that have always moved people in our direction when we deliver a persuasive appeal. Those fundamental features of the human condition aren't going to change in 12 years. Those will still be the same, and I just thought that it was important to highlight those universals of influence that are likely to be with us and likely to be effective no matter the delivery system we employ to generate influence from our audiences. Absolutely. I don't think the principles changed a whit, but maybe there's examples of where it's done. But as I'm reading through this, even though you don't maybe mention on a specific page about some aspect of e-commerce, and you do talk about all the the digital applications, digital uh, examples come to mind. I, I see it all the time on, uh, on on digital platforms. So you, as I've as I've touched on, you've had a, a career as a uh, academician, and done a lot of research, and even you talk in the book about when you first wrote this, you thought that you know you talked about there's there's no derision like derision from fellow PhDs, yeah. uh, and you thought you were going to become the pop psychology guy, and it didn't happen at all. They they embraced it and. Uh, but you didn't just do experiments uh, there at the university or in a somewhat more clinical setting. You went much, much further than that. And I think it's important for people to know. For instance, as you read through the book, you learn that at one point you uh, – I guess you were secretly a car salesman. You were a waiter. You did door-to-door selling. To <laughs> tell us about some of this uh, additional work that you did. It was 
as a result of a revelation I had uh, after doing an initial three years or so in my laboratory studying the persuasion process, how if you say something this way, uh, 16% of people say yes to it, you say the same thing differently. And now 35% say yes to it. Those were the kinds of questions I was asking, and they were valuable questions, but I was asking them in too restricted a context. In laboratory settings with college students as my subjects on a university campus, and what I recognized is I wasn't learning about what were the most powerful influences on the influence process there. I needed to get outside of my laboratory, outside of the campus, to see what worked best in the influence wars that are being fought constantly all around us. We're never failing to try to influence people or trying to handle the influence approaches of others in our daily lives. They happen all the time, professionally and personally. What are the factors that work best there? And to do that, it seemed to me I needed to learn from the pros whose economic livelihood depended on the success of the strategies they used. So I entered undercover the training <laughs> programs of as many influenced professions as I could get access to. Like you said, I learned how to sell automobiles, how to sell portrait photography over the phone, how to sell insurance from an office. I learned how uh, fundraisers get people to say yes, how recruiters get people to say yes. How, I, I even in, uh, uh, infiltrated um, cult recruiting strategies. <laughs> what do the cults do that so powerfully moves us in their direction and holds us there? And across it all, I looked for the commonalities. What were the things that were working wherever people were moving people in moving others in their direction successfully. And that's what led us to the six uh, principles that were in the first book? Yes. I was shocked at how small a footprint there was. There were only six universals. Yes, right. That and let me mention what they are. And then in this book, but wait, there's more, listener. <laughs> You've added a seventh. So the, the six that so many people are familiar with people who've read the book or heard about it, are reciprocation, liking, social proof, authority, scarcity, and commitment and consistency. And then the, the, the new one is unity, which we'll talk about in a minute. That's called a teaser for you listeners. Let's jump into uh, them. Again, back for the folks that have not yet uh, read this, maybe uh, people that have heard about it but have always as wanted to, now's your opportunity. So the first one is reciprocation. And uh, a couple years ago, I got uh, I get books now all the time from uh, authors who want to be on the show, and it's uh, really I, – when I started the show, I didn't think there'd be 52 books a year on <laughs> marketing and sales. <laughs> I, I'm, I, apparently, there are. And anyway, at one point, I got a book from a – it was a sales book, and in it was a – included from this author was a gift card, uh, a valuable gift card to a very expensive steak restaurant. And I contacted that author. I, I thanked him for it. I said, hey uh, – Appreciate it. Not necessary. Would it be possible for me to, to mail this back to you if you could just give me your, your address? And he wouldn't do it. And I ultimately not didn't interview him. 
explain what reciprocation has to do with why I wanted to send that card, that gift card back to that author. Because we are obligated to say yes to those we owe. We have been trained from childhood. And by the way, this is true in every human culture. There's a rule that says you must not take without giving in return. So if you took that gift card and kept it and used it, you owed that man. Mm -hmm. And there would be a pressure on you to say yes, not for reasons of the merits of his book, but for an entirely different social obligation. Right? So that's what people can do. For example, the Disabled Veterans Organization, when they send out uh, appeals, letters for contributions, if they add a little packet of these gummed address labels, mm-hmm. right, their hit rate goes up by 35%. Because people, who, who's going to send back the packet of labels? You can't. It doesn't make sense. They've got your name on them. Mm -hmm. So you keep them. And now you give as a consequence. (laughs) That's right. I can remember when I was a kid, my dad would get these kind of things. And I I might have seen him a few times and said, oh, that's cool. But maybe it was a pen or something like that. And I remember him saying, I'm going to throw it away. But if you want it, I have to make a donation to this organization. Right, right. <laughs> so it worked on dear old dad, too. Yes, and that's the principle of unity. If if one of his family gets something, oh, that's he right. still owes. <laughs> right. You know, there was this great study that my colleague in the UK did, uh, Stephen uh, J. Martin, and he went and uh, studied uh, McDonald's uh, and uh, did an experiment where uh, for a whole week, half of the families who came in, or in fact, all of the families that came in during that week, received the kids received a balloon from McDonald's. Right? Half of them got the um, got the balloon as they were leaving as a as a thank you. Right? The other half got the balloon as they were coming in. Those families bought 25% more food if they got the balloon first. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the point. Coffee orders went up by 20%. Now, that's not the kids. The kids aren't drinking the coffee. (laughs) The parents are. That meant the parents were giving back for the gift that went to their kids. That's the idea of unity. Yeah. Can you explain what this, uh, before we move on, the concept of rejection then retreat? Yeah, of course. So what the rule says is that we're obligated to give back to those who have first given to us, no matter what they've given. And that includes concessions that they might make to us in a bargaining interaction. For example, if somebody, if somebody well, let's take a, a, an everyday situation. If somebody asks me to loan them $50, and I say, no, I can't, I don't have 50 bucks, I'm sorry. And they say, well, could you, then could you make it a 20? And they make a concession to me. Mm-hmm. My research shows 
that they be that I will then become significantly more likely to give them the 20 than if they had just asked for the $20 bill by itself mm. because they've conceded to me I said first I mean they asked for 50 I said no they said well how about 20 well Douglas I'd already used up no <laughs> right and a boy scout used this trick on you he did he asked me to buy tickets to the Boy Scout Circus at $5 a piece. I didn't want any. I said no. And then he said, well, how about a couple of our chocolate bars here? They're only a dollar a piece. And I bought two of his chocolate bars. And Douglas, I immediately recognized that something important had happened because I don't like chocolate bars. <laughs> but I do like dollars. <laughs> and I was standing there with two of his chocolate bars, and he was walking away with two of my dollars. <laughs> Something important had been operating on me there. And that Boy Scout probably didn't know that he just did that to Robert Cialdini. <laughs> no, he didn't. never introduced himself. I never introduced myself. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's move on to the next one quickly um, in our remaining time, and that is uh, liking. So years ago, I, 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 I was, uh, had this friend in college, and then he and I were in the same uh, artillery unit in, in overseas. And uh, he came back to the United States and work, started working on Wall Street, and, and I, uh, he helped me get a job, my first job at a big ad agency in New York City. And I remember uh, Jim called me up my first day, and the only thing I remember from that conversation is he said, hey, let me give you some advice. Whatever you do, Try to make people like you. Yeah. What was Jim on to? He was on to a fundamental rule that I think every one of your listeners would recognize. We prefer to say yes to those we like. If we can arrange for people to feel a sense of rapport with us, they will be significantly more likely to agree with our requests, proposals, recommendations. So how do we do that? There are two things that are simple and very effective. Point out genuine similarities between us because people like those who are like them. And secondly, give genuine compliments because people like those who do like them and say so. Right. And now you also, this will be of great interest to the Marketing Book Podcast listeners because Dr. Cialdini, I don't know if you know this, but I have the most attractive audience in all of the <laughs> podcast world. They're very good-looking people. In fact, I think they get even better looking by listening to the show. And you talk about how better-looking people are, are more liked. Yes. There's a kind of halo associated with a physical attractiveness. Research shows that if somebody is seen as physically attractive, people presume all kinds of other positive things about that person – kindness, intelligence, generosity, all these things that aren't necessarily the case, but it's called a halo effect. And as the, for that reason, in all of those sales training programs that I infiltrated, we were taught uh, grooming. We were given grooming tips and hints as to how to be, to, to uh, make ourselves more attractive. 
because that produces a willingness to say yes to the people we find physically attractive, not just psychologically compatible with us. Now, there are other ways besides that to to be liked, uh, like, for instance, a repeated contact with, with people, a familiarity, and uh, and just by some sort of association, right? By just association, just being associated with positive things uh, with uh, cause uh, causes us to be uh, to like the person who is associated with those things. There was a lovely study done of uh, in advertising uh, world of uh, a, mo- a particular brand of mouthwash. They made a set of uh, commercials in which they displayed their mouthwash superimposed over beautiful nature scenes, right? It significantly increased market share for them because <laughs> they were associated with something beautiful. So just the association is enough uh, to make that difference. Yes. So let's move on to the next one, which is social proof, which I seem to see more on social media than anywhere else. I, maybe it's because I'll, I'll shop on Amazon or something like that. But in the days of the Soviet Union, for instance, there would be stories of a, a store that would suddenly open up for the day, and a line would form outside, and maybe a long line, and people, maybe it was a, a butcher or a, a bakery or something, and people would see the line forming, and they would get in the line to get the scarce items before they even knew what was being sold. Right. The cue there was the length of the line. If a lot of people are waiting, it must be the right thing to do. One, that's, This is what social proof is. You just look for cues as to what you should do based on what those around you like you are doing, and mm-hmm. you will normally be right. Not always, of course, but it's a great shortcut to deciding what to do. You know that's that that uh, study that I was telling you about in McDonald's um, by my colleague uh, uh, Stephen Martin, Steve uh, J. Martin. He showed that he, if he was able to um, say to people at who had just made an order, right? Um, would you like dessert, right? That was what all of them are trained to say. If he included the words, the McFlurry is our most popular dessert, Mm -hmm. social proof, McFlurry sales went up 45%. (laughs) Just tell people what's most popular. And you've engaged social proof. We all have most popular models, most popular features, most popular payment plans. To get people off the fence who are just dithering, tell them what's most popular, and you've given them a reason to choose that they didn't have before. Yes. Now, you you mentioned the word dithering, and social proof works better in certain instances, which I found interesting, like um, when when things are uncertain. So let's say it's – like the the restaurant you mentioned in the book, people would go with the most popular if they were more unfamiliar with what was on the menu, or if people are unsure, or if if it's an ambiguous situation. Exactly. When we're unsure, we don't look inside ourselves for answers, right? All we see is that lack of certainty. So we look outside, and one place we look is to our peers, 
right? So what the information of social proof provides is a way to reduce our uncertainty about what we should do in that situation. And for example, <clears throat> in other res- uh, uh, another study in restaurants, people chose the most popular item no matter what their demographic was, if they were informed of that most popular item. Uh, males, females, business, visitors, uh, uh, older people, younger people. But those who were most likely to choose the most popular items on the menu were first-time visitors who were most uncertain of the choices before them. And this can also go badly. So can you talk about this pluralistic ignorance and I guess how we can what, – what can we do to defend against our uh, yearning to want to follow the power of social proof? In situations where things are uncertain, let's say you're walking down the street and you see someone on the, on the side of the sidewalk collapsed uh, uh, next to a building. What is that? Is that a drunk sleeping one off? Is that a homeless person who, if you interfered, would be angry that you inter- interrupted his sleep? Is that someone who just had a heart attack? You don't know. Well, you would right? probably be one of my colleagues. <laughs> so what you do is you look at what the people around you are doing. Are they reacting as if it's an emergency or are they just strolling by as if, oh yeah, that's somebody uh, who's just sleeping one off. Here's what you don't recognize, the idea of pluralistic ignorance. They're all looking at you. And if you're not reacting as if it's an emergency because you're trying to be cool and, 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 and uh, uh, aloof, right? everybody sees everybody else ask, act, acting like it's not an emergency. Mm-hmm. And, and the person doesn't get aid. Because the social proof says nobody's acting like it is something to be uh, 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 excited and, and, and worried about. And you'll probably save my life as well as be this occasional co-host because in the book, you explain what to do if, let's say, you're leaving a concert venue and there's a lot of people and maybe there's been drinking and might be, you know, and suddenly you start having a stroke and people think, oh, they're just passing out. You include exactly what to do, how to get help and and swim against the current of this pluralistic ignorance. You point to somebody specific and tell them to get help. Right. This is one of the other additions to the new ad- uh, version of influence, and that is I am much more likely to be giving a, uh, recommendations for specific words that you say in the various situations where you want to be influential. Mm-hmm. And if you're in that situation, so you're leaving a, a concert, you're heading to the parking lot, you're suddenly feeling dizzy, you sit down next to a tree and uh, uh, leaning against it and you, you feel, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm getting a stroke. What is going on here? Right? You can't just moan and groan. People won't know what that means. You could be high. They don't know what that means. You have to do this. You have to point to one individual and say, you in the blue jacket, call 911. That 
reduces the pluralistic ignorance. It's not the case that people can walk by anymore saying, oh, there's no emergency here. You have instructed them exactly in what to do. And if it is a stroke, you have probably saved your life. Amazing. And I have to add also that in your book, Persuasion, it terrified me. You explain how police coerce false confessions. It, it woke me up. And then you said, don't ever speak to the police without an attorney present. And if, you, if they push back and say, why? You say, blame it on me. So I always remember that page 65 of Persuasion, I'm always ready to say, yes. if that ever happened, which will never happen. Right. But I'd better say, nope, Dr. Cialdini's book, page 65. Right. Go look it up. <laughs> These are the exact words I would ask people to say, right? Uh, no, I'm not going to go further with this interview because I read a book that said that even in, innocent people can be pushed to make uh, uh, statements they don't want to make, right? It was a book written by Robert Cialdini. So, let the cops come after me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And you know what? I was talking to a guy I know who's an investigator for the Virginia State Police, and I was, of course, telling him about that. Now, here's a guy that deals with that kind of thing. He's an investigator, and he said, I would never talk to the police without an attorney. This is somebody yeah. on the inside saying the yeah. same thing. So, yeah. and, I, and I sent him a link to that interview. He's going to read your book. So the next one, when I was younger, when I was a kid, I can remember watching TV and there would be a TV commercial with an actor that I remember from like Marcus Welby or something, a TV show about a doctor. Mm -hmm. And the doc, the guy said, he's standing there in a white doctor's jacket, same actor. And he says, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Right. What does that have to do with authority, and why did that still work? It worked like gangbusters, let me tell you. They, they, so that ad is not just fav, uh, famous for that line. It sold the cough syrup. They were selling Vicks uh, cough syrup. And uh, so uh, what it is is that it, it borrows – from the principle of authority that people say say yes to the recommendations of a legitimately constituted authority well this this individual who was recommending vicks cough syrup played a doctor on tv and the simple association of that man to the concept of expert of doctor was enough to make uh, the sales uh, rise I was amazed at being reminded of how susceptible we are to authority and authority figures. You go on to talk about one study where uh, it was a controlled experiment, but they were, uh, there were specific drugs that nurses could give out based on the instructions, and a doctor could call in. It wasn't even a doctor. It was part of a test. They didn't even know who they, they – but they said they were a doctor, and they wanted them to change the dose to almost something lethal, and they started to do it, and then they were intervened by the testers. But it was – even in a situation like that, because the doctor said so, they were going to go with that. Uh, what can people do to increase their authority – yeah. And, and besides being good-looking, uh, right. you even talk about business suits. Yeah. No, there's no question about it. You can dress uh, uh, for business in an interview or uh, a meeting. But more than that, uh, if you've got a message to send, let's say, on the internet, 
get a testimonial of a of a acknowledged expert who is saying something that's consistent with the with your product or service. It doesn't have to be a rave towards it. It's just that what you are offering, what the differentiating factor in your product or service is, is something that authorities have agreed is a really important thing to say. So that's one thing. Be sure that you have these uh, uh, authority voices. And somebody once asked me, how do I multiply the impact of an authority voice? And the answer is clear. Multiply the authorities. Have two such people, and the research shows that's more effective than having one such authority testimonial. Right, and for listeners who will have heard the intro to this show, I always say, this is the Marketing Book Podcast, because there's always a new listener every episode, and I say it was named by LinkedIn and Forbes as one of the top marketing podcasts. Yeah. You see what I did there? You, not only you did, did you do that, you did it in the right place. At the beginning, so that authority aura infuses everything afterwards. I see so many marketing appeals that have testimonials that don't occur until much later in the text of the message or at the bottom of the image. No, no. You want that at the top so that authority uh, appeal is with you that you earned, it's true, all the way through the processing of your message. Interesting. So just to go to the next one, scarcity, years ago when I was living in New York City, one day I was, uh, one Sunday I was reading the New York Times and I saw the, an ad that said a Broadway show, I think it was Everything Goes, it said final week. Uh, that afternoon I went to see that show. What... <laughs> What was the pull of that ad to get me all the way across town and spend good money to see that show? People want more of what they can have less of. (laughs) That's the principle of scarcity. Those things that are rare, scarce, dwindling in availability become immediately more attractive to us. And there was a study of 6,700 online commercial sites right, where they were selling products or service, and the A-B tests within them to see which was the most powerful feature that if they included in on the site as a, a, a feature of the messaging, most increased conversions, And they had some that were economic, like, oh, there's uh, free delivery. They had some that were technological. Oh, there's a search function on the site. They had some that were uh, psychological. Was there a call-to-action line? Uh, The the top six were the six principles of influence. (laughs) And the top of those six was scarcity. Yes. And what was next? Social proof. And what was next? Authority. Yep. Next thing you know, you've sold several million books. (laughs) You've got that. Well, one thing I did want to mention, though, it was in the scarcity section, is about this concept of reactance, which I see with consumers all the time. And you talk about how people, when people encounter a piece of information, they immediately become less likely 
to accept it if they view it as part of an effort to persuade them. Right. Explain that. Because people don't want to be pushed or pressured into a choice. We value our freedoms to decide. And anybody who tries to limit those freedoms by that kind of pressure, we react against and go in the opposite direction. So, uh, one of the things that uh, we have to be sure of is that when we are presenting information, it is not the hard sell. People react against that. We should present information and say that this is designed to give you greater evidence of what you should choose. This is for you to decide, right? It's it's informing people into assent, not pushing or coercing or certainly not deceiving them into assent. We are providing valuable evidence about the merits of the choice that you are facing. Right? That's the way to disarm this idea of people wanting to push back against us if we're trying to push them too hard. It's such a great point, I think, particularly for marketers and salespeople who are just pushing too hard. You can yeah. see the reactants in the body language. I, I've certainly watched it. So, There's even a study that was done, uh, several studies, that show that one way, another way to disarm people who might feel that they're being pushed is to, at the end of your comment, say something that everybody knows but is not at top of consciousness for people. And that is to say, of course, it's completely up to you. Yes, absolutely. And that has reduced the pressure to, or the tendency to react against your message if you just reinstall the idea that this is entirely your choice. Right. It reminds me of the expression, people want to buy, but they don't want to be sold to. Precisely. Yes. And the last one that was in the original book was Commitment and Consistency. And having read that book, another way you've affected me is when occasionally some telemarketer is able to get past my my force field (laughs) of – I pick up the phone and somebody's calling and it happens to be a telemarketer and it happens to be a live person. They say, how are you today? Well, immediately I, I know they're trying to sell something. I always say, busy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that has a lot to do with commitment and consistency. Can you explain what, what that concept is and why I, why I say busy instead of yes. saying, I'm great. It's the best day right. of my life. Right. If they say, oh, I'm so glad you're you, you, – so let me explain to you uh, – uh, charity organizations will do this. Could you give – to some people who are not doing as well as you. Right? You've just committed yourself to being in a great place, and and now they're saying, well, can you then help someone who's not in that situation? So you don't want to say that. If you say busy, that means they're on record that you're not going to give them more time than they deserve, right? <laughs> right, and you talk about, this is so relevant to salespeople, of getting small commitments, as you go along. And it reminds me, again, of another story. A friend of mine who's a very shrewd trial attorney, he called me up one day and he said, Douglas, do you like children? (laughs) And having read your book, I knew knew the con was on. And I didn't know what it was, but I said, I like my children. <laughs> and sure enough, he wanted me to join a board that he was on. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, and I said, well, I'm happy to help, but 
never heard of it, but it was <laughs> it's interesting. Anyway, in the book, so the listener knows, you talk quite a bit about it's almost like a, a supernatural power or, or tendency that people want to have not to disagree with what they've said in the past. Correct. You don't want to be seen as a, fl- a flip-flopper or uh, somebody who uh, uh, is easily influenced as one thing does another thing. No, you want to be uh, seen as uh, solid and, uh, and, and congruent with what you have said or done. Right. So, Dr. Cialdini, can you tell us about unity? And as a jumping-off point, you're from Wisconsin— you were born there, as was Frank Lloyd Wright. You're a, a Packers fan, okay? Yes. I just upset a bunch of Vikings fans and uh, Chicago yeah. Bears fans. But why do you like Justin Timberlake and Lil Wayne as well? Because they're in the same unit as me, and that is avid Packer fans. <laughs> I read this article that sh- said that both of them are fervent uh, Packers supporters, and Douglas... I immediately thought better of their music <laughs> and wished them greater success. Yes, yes. Because inside our groups, inside the groups that we label as we, what we would call we groups, we favor and follow our fellow members. And how, how does geographic location play into that? Well, you were exactly right to to suggest that uh, something like a region makes a difference. And uh, here's another example: uh, if you receive a an, a survey in the mail to be filled out from a university, you're significantly more likely to complete it as requested if it comes from a university in your state. Mm. If it comes from a university you went to, you're even more likely to do it because you're of those people. Yes. Yeah. So, well, Dr. Cialdini, if if readers took only one thing away from this book, what would you hope it would be? You know, um, it would be not to have a favorite persuasive approach. I have a friend who is a marketing professor who set about to find the single most effective persuasive uh, approach. Uh, and I, he, he went about it for two and a half years. And he, he saw me at a conference. He said, Bob, I found it. The single most effective persuasive approach is not to have a single persuasive approach. Mm. That's a fool's game to think that the same principle is going to work in every situation, on every audience, on and on every set of circumstances? No, no. You find what principle is already there in the situation. Do you really have social proof you can point to? Do you really have authority voices you can point to? Do you really have a scarce opportunity that's dwindling in availability? Point to that. <laughs> its engine is already running. Not only will it be effective, you'll be ethical. Because you won't have to fabricate the principle, you just point to it. Such great advice. And I can see how humans uh, would want to go to the, the easiest thing, and they want to know just what's the one thing. It's like people say to me, you've read all these hundreds of books for the show, what's the one I should read? <laughs> well, uh, right, right. I'm not sure yeah. you should read just one, maybe a yeah. couple, but it kind of depends on, on, on your situation. So is there something a listener could do today? 
to get them started, to, to put in action one of the many ideas from your book or perhaps one that we've talked about? Yes. When you need buy-in from people on an idea that you have that you think if, if you can get support from it, you can take it up the line and, and make it sing, but you need to have buy-in from people around you or, or even your boss, right? So you will give them an outline or a, you know, a blueprint of your idea, right? And then you ask for their opinion on it. That's a mistake. Mm, yes. Don't ask for opinion because when you ask for opinion, you get a critic. Instead, ask for that person's advice. When you ask for advice, you get a partner. Yes. That is such great advice. It was towards the end of the book, and I had never seen that. And I just, again, it was head slapping. Why did I, why did I never realize that? Ask for advice, not opinion, and you get buy-in, and they don't react quite as personally. Right. Since the book, there's now another piece of research that shows not only is it asking for advice better than asking for opinion, asking for advice is better than asking for feedback, which yes. we often do. Ah, so stop using the F word, folks. No. <laughs> right. All of them. <laughs> yes, that's right. Feedback. And as you uh, continue to uncover more research, I hope you will write another version of this. I recently interviewed uh, Dr. Philip Kotler uh, at his 90th birthday, and he's got more books in the shoot. So <laughs> yeah. just, to, just to give you some goals there, Dr. Cialdini. <laughs> Great. You got, I've got a few more. years. Yeah, oh, yeah, quite a few, yes. <laughs> so are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? You know, I... I'm a big fan of a book called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Yes. He's a historian. It is mind-blowing, especially the last couple of chapters that tell us where we're likely to be going as a species into the future. It's mind-blowing. That's terrific. It's been Sapiens. mentioned several times uh, yeah. on the show. That's great. Are there, were there any others? Well, the ones that I love is, is, is Noise by uh, Kahneman uh, and um, the new edition of Nudge by, by Richard Thaler. Oh, terrific. Yes, I've heard, heard about those. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable on, on, on this episode's website page, including the books you've mentioned, your site uh, your, your LinkedIn profile and Twitter. And to the listener, please do me one big favor and reach out to Dr. Cialdini in any way you can and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Heck, thank him for being an occasional co-host, even though he, <laughs> he was here. It really makes his day and it, uh, they, they, they really appreciate it. And if he hears from enough of you, he'll, he'll maybe come on the third time and then he'll become a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club, which entitles him to free upgrades. Well, I what, they. Yeah. I don't know what the upgrades are, but they're free. Yeah, right. well, great. Uh, but they can do that at our website, influenceatwork.com. Terrific. And we'll include a link to that. And listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Influence. The Psychology of Persuasion, New and Expanded. The author is Dr. Robert Cialdini. Bob, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, I'm glad I did. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh,